All right, so I've actually titled this teaching Personal Reaction. And I've, uh, I've broken it down into three sections. Direction, broken obedience, and disastrous results. Direction, broken obedience, and disastrous results. I actually tried to make them kind of fit with the same letter, but that just wasn't working out for me. So uh, I decided not to not spend much time there. So for direction, a little background. Who were the Amalekites? Um, well, the Amalekites were a, a cruel, uh, murderous, ferocious tribe of robbers. And uh, they were constantly making raids on the, the southern frontier of Judah. And in so doing, influencing um, the people with their pagan ways and pagan gods. Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Very successful campaigns, by the way. The, campa- the campaigns were led by his uncle Abner. Very successful in, de- in the defeating of Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Zobah. All right, so he had many campaigns that had gone well. The Lord had, had given him victory. And in so doing, he had now surrounded himself um, in, 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 with grandeur, beyond his, his highest hopes. Um, and, and this precise time, when this took place, the Lord had presented him with another um, task, another command. And this is where he was presented with probably the most supreme test of his life. And, and often, this comes to us as well, and many know it. When everything's going perfect, uh, you're in a season of prosperity, you fill in the blank, things are going smoothly. Many of us know it too well. F.B. Myers says, If of late you have had immunity from special adversity, if your circumstances have been made easy and comfortable, if paths that were once difficult have become smooth and easy, be on your guard. For at such time as ye think not, the Son of Man comes to call you to his bar. Now, what exactly does that mean? That means when things are going smoothly and comfortably for you, that's when you need to be ready and be prepared that's precisely when the enemy loves to come in and attack you. Um, and it can be in any range of your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be your job. It could be you know, how you view certain topics that are biblical versus worldly. Um, you know, the Lord will always test us, and it's at these times where, where he'll put a test to see how we measure. Um, it may be small. It may be huge. But either way, it will measure you against the bar he has set. You know, it's often been said that we are either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into a trial. It's a, it's a continual life cycle. I have, I have plenty of business charts that so, show these business life cycles of planning. And, and when you're done planning, you're executing. When you're done executing, it goes into production. When you're done with production, blah, blah, blah. There's no end, right? There's no, there's no bench warmers in the Christian life. Everybody plays. Let's reread verse 3, because this is where we see the Lord's command to Paul. Verse 3 says, Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Utterly destroy. Now, utterly destroy to me is a very clearly defined set of terms. It's one term, utterly. Um, there's no real guesswork in that statement. I'll say I often use a couple things interchangeably as if they mean the same thing. I use, like, say I'm saying a couple days or a few days. 
I use those interchangeably like they could mean the same thing. I'm married to an English teacher. They do not mean the same thing. A couple means two. A few means more than two. Um, however, I use them, and I know other people have used them differently as well. And, and so the receiver of the word can be, can be kind of confused. Well, utterly is not so generic of a term, but God in his graciousness actually sets out through Samuel, if you don't understand what utterly means, this is what it means, and gives him a category of everything that should be utterly destroyed. Um, now, if you notice, it, it doesn't mention bringing back any spoil in terms of precious metals. I, I say this as a side note because it's pertinent in this type of case when there was an attack or a battle to take case. Um, precious metals could only be taken once they had passed through the fire of purification. And that's, we read that in Numbers 31. It's verses 21 through 23. It says, And Eliezer the priest said unto the men of war which went to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold and silver, the brass, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that may abide the fire, you shall make it go through the fire, and it shall be clean. I say that because you don't see that in what the Lord has told Samuel to tell Saul. It's strictly the animals and the people. Now God had, God had given Saul the task of wiping out the name of Amalek from under heaven. In verse 2, we see actually that the Lord remembers what Amalek had done before. What, what, what Amalek had done to the Israelite people. God actually remembers and God brings it up as the purpose to wipe the name out from under heaven. I, uh, I praise God for his forgiveness and not remembering my sin anymore. Um, and it's purely by the Son, Jesus Christ, that that takes place. I don't want God remembering my past. And I, take, uh, I, I, I cling to Hebrews 10.17 where it says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Here, though, God is remembering specifically what the Amalekites had done to God's people. And it's speaking of Exodus chapter 17. It's verses 8 through 16, and this is where Aaron and her are holding up Moses' arms. And as his arms and hands are lifted, Joshua is winning in the battle. After which Moses actually built an altar to the Lord and called it Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. The Amalekites had stood before the bar of God. They had been weighed and found wanting and did not measure up. And now God called Saul to wipe them out. See, if the Amalekites were left unchanged, it would become Israel's undoing. We get into broken obedience. You know, Luke 8, verse 18. We see Jesus, in Jesus' own words here, specifically saying to those in his midst, take heed how you hear. And we talked a little bit about this at the, at the Man in the Mirror Bible study a few weeks back. But it's, it, it's, it's perfect and it's a perfect application for each one of us when, when we desire to obey the Lord. Take heed how you hear. Now, why would Jesus say this to those that were listening? Well, um, he needs to emphasize to those around him, they needed to hear him and his voice and his words and not hear what was going on in their mind or what their mind was telling them instead. Um, anyone ever heard of selective listening? Just by chance, I throw that out there. It's a mysterious term. You know, we actually had a talk with this with the youth. Um, we were going through the book of James in ATG, and we talked about selective listening, I want to say, about two weeks ago. Some of you parents are like, yes, finally. 
But it's not just the teens. Everyone. Selective listening happens to all of us. And it happens to, to those that think it doesn't. I, I, I've become very, I was very good at this when I was younger. Many years of, of selective listening. Why do we do it? We like hearing what we want to hear. It's as simple as that. I was good at it growing up. So good that my wife occasionally catches me still doing it. I'm not setting out to do it. It just happens. I, I, I try and catch myself, and it's bad. Um, we like hearing what we want to hear. Selective listening is, is listening to the only parts of what you're hearing and picking them out and hearing those alone. Now, whether that's because some parts of what you're hearing are bad, um, or, or it's because that only certain parts of what you're hearing deal with you, a.k.a. being short-sighted, not realizing that what you might uh, have told to you can affect other people. Um, it's really caring about, you know, it's, eh, I don't want to hear that, I want to hear this. Regardless, we have this same kind of attitude when the Lord is trying to speak with us, amen? And it, 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 it's not, many people put selective listening uh, and put it and attach it to, oh, okay, I only have selective listening on the really huge issues of life and the really big standpoints that God has put in his book. Now, selective listening happens to all of us at all points every time we hear from the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And it's regardless of how severe the issue is. Um, Oftentimes, we don't want to hear things the Lord is telling us because it makes us step out of our comfort zone. It makes us, the Lord is telling us to do something we're not, frankly, comfortable with. Um, We don't really want to stand out. We don't want to shine a spotlight on ourselves. Jesus tells us, take heed how we hear. Don't flippantly hear. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other and only put a small filter up to catch what you want to hear. Actually listen. What we see here with Saul is the same thing. Saul had a moment of selective listening. So what does Saul do? Well, Saul goes and warns a local city to get out of the path of war. And he shows them kindness because they had shown the Israelites kindness when they were coming in from Egypt. And then, as he wars with the Amalekites, he seems to be obedient with the Lord. Okay? On on the topical level, he seems to be obedient and do what the Lord has called him to do. Well, what takes place? Let's read verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything that was despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. They had no problem destroying that that was worthless, but kept that which was the best. So, didn't quite live up to being obedient. He spares the king of the Amalekites. And not just the king, spares some of the animals. So the question here is, how well did he actually follow the the letter of the law that God had given him, the command? What else did he spare? Okay. You know, I I looked at this passage and and I was reading and uh, I thought, wow. Saul thinks he knows better than God here. And then I stopped and I'm like, you know, Lord, 
because the Holy Spirit knocked on my heart. I can't count the number of times I thought I knew better than the Lord. I had 25 plus years of doing that. And you know, there are still times to this day when I do it. There are still times all of us do it, even as believers and those that are saved. We struggle with it because our flesh does not want to be obedient to the Lord. Right here is a definition in verse 9 of what Pastor Tim calls the, the difference between right and almost right. He might have utterly destroyed 99.9% of the Amalekites, but he left 0.01% being the king and then, and then the animals. Now, we see immediately what takes place. At the same time here, we see in verse 11 that God speaks to Samuel and says he greatly regrets setting up Saul as king. And as I said when I read this, I pray that each one of us never desires to hear God say that about anything he has given us to do. And it's not in terms of something this large, but if God puts on your heart to talk to someone and you walk away, I would hate for you to say that have God say that. I greatly regret even giving you the privilege to talk to one of my children about me. So I had to stop and, and, and reflect on that a little while, but we look here, what is the prophet Samuel's response? He grieved. He, he didn't hear from, from the Lord about how, the, how God w- was uh, regretful over uh, putting Saul in, in, in charge and, and being a king in Israel. It wasn't like Jonah with Nineveh, where Jonah wanted God to, to strike the, the, the people of Nineveh, and he was angry because God was showing the people, mercy. He grieved. He grieved that God saw the king of Israel like this. Samuel had known Saul. Saul had, had, had followed the commandments of the Lord and, and God had given him victories. But something had changed over this time span. And now he must have decided, you know what? I don't necessarily need to do everything the Lord commands me. So Samuel grieves What a great example for us. What a great example for us to see how we should act when we see a brother or sister in Christ not following what the Lord has told them to do. Do we grieve? Are we actually saddened? Samuel cried out to the Lord that night. Do we? Do we cry out on the behalf of other brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them Walking away from the Lord or where we see them, you know, their decisions are not, we know their decisions are not what the Lord is calling them to do. So Samuel leaves and he travels 15 miles to find Saul at Carmel. Well, what exactly was Saul thinking? Samuel shows up. What is Saul thinking here? Saul thought he had triumphed. Saul Saul actually thought He had triumphed and done things correctly. Verse 15 shows that he disobeyed the full commandment of God because he wanted to honor God with his sacrifices. Verse 15 says, And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. See, at the very end of that, he says, But the rest we've utterly destroyed kind of not even realizing what he's saying in the first part of that verse. He disobeyed the full commandment of God because he wanted to honor God with sacrifices. But there is so much more in that verse. Let's look back 
Look how he phrases it. They, not I, who Samuel gave the instruction of the Lord to. Samuel didn't go around to the army. He gave it to the king. gave it to Saul. Saul turns around and says, they. He is the commander-in-chief. He is the king. What he says goes, and his army follows his commandments, follows his orders to the T. Yet, he blames the very act that was disobedient to the Lord on his army. He blames the people on the soldiers that carried it out. So he's not taking responsibility, but rather blaming his army. He almost sees what Samuel is getting at here and is trying to play the deflection game. At this point, Samuel tells Saul to be quiet. You read verse 16, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. I can almost see Samuel going, Stop digging. Be quiet. Right? I see him. He says, Be quiet. Just, Just stop talking. By the prompting of the Lord, Samuel refers to a time when Saul was little in his own eyes. When he was little in his own eyes. That was a time prior. That was a time that has long since passed, when he was actually humble in his own eyes. So that means that now, in this time period, Saul isn't little in his own eyes. Well, if you're not little in your own eyes, what are you? You're puffed up. All the victories that God had given him. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar stepped out and looked at the things that God had allowed him to have and said, all this is because of me. And then God casts him out and takes his, and, and he's depraved. So all of the victories that God had given Saul, he's not remembering that and he's no longer little or humble in his own eyes. Saul's reminding him of this at this point in time. In verse 20, after Samuel confronts Saul about being disobedient, we see Saul's reaction. Verse 20 says, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Okay, so he thinks he has obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone and done, gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He thinks he has been obedient. Now, this portion of Scripture right here, we're not actually told why he had this reaction. So there's two, there's two reasons that I'm looking at and I see here. Um, you know, prayed on this and you, you look, there's two reasons. One, this has been a repetitive pattern so much that scales have begun to form on his eyes and his heart has started to harden to where he doesn't know what true obedience looks like. And, and that happens in our lives. The more you are disobedient in an area that God is calling you to be obedient in, you forget what obedience looks like. And you start thinking what the way in which you're acting, the way in which I'm acting, is obedient. And it's not. So that's one way. He might be looking at this and think he's being obedient because he has completely forgot. His eyes are shielded as to what true obedience is. Or, on the other hand, remember Samuel is the prophet of God and and Saul is king of Israel. There's always going to be eyes on him. 
There's always going to be eyes on the both of them together. So the other, the other aspect is he wanted to put on the face of someone who's obedient. He wanted to portray that he's actually obedient to everyone that's looking, including the prophet of God. Almost like he wanted to deceive everybody into, no, 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 I actually did what I was told. You're mistaken. We're not told. It doesn't clearly outline that. However, of these two, the scales forming on the eyes and the heart hardening as to what true obedience looks like is the more dangerous of the two. Not only this, but in 24, you see that he states that he has sinned. So now he's acknowledging it. Now he sees that he was disobedient by sparing the king and the animals. And he says, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Oh, what a price to pay. The blessing that comes from being obedient to the Lord because you fear the people. And I can say this about, about my life too. We all can. I have, there are times I have purposely not spoken to someone when God clearly, clearly opens up an opportunity and he's, he's giving and pricking my heart to do it because I have feared their reaction. I have feared the reaction of the people around me. I, 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 would, I, I wouldn't hesitate to say all of us have been in that circumstance. I think any believer is at some point in time. But if God is for us, who can be against us? When God puts something on our heart to do, why in the world, and I'm speaking to myself too, why in the world are we scared? He is behind us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's Philippians 4.13. Because when you do something and you are obedient to the Lord, yeah, somebody may not like it, but guess what? It's not you they don't like. It's Christ who they see in you. And that's fine. They feel uncomfortable, it's because the Holy Spirit's making them uncomfortable. Praise the Lord for that. I hope they feel more uncomfortable because that's what's going to save them from eternal hell. But you know what? Saul was fearful of the people. Doesn't go into depth on that. We don't know what the people, if he thought he was going to have a mutiny, don't know. But he was king and he had over 210,000 soldiers. Pretty much could have done anything. Don't know. But you know what? We can't look down and say anything about it because we have those same situations in our life. Now, this portion of Scripture ends with Saul finally realizing that because of his disobedience, the Lord has rejected him from being king over Israel anymore. So, what do we do and what are our reactions? Now, I'm, uh, I'm not talking about some of you are, you know, it, it, towards the end of church, you get to the point, like, what am I having for lunch? Like, I think the Lord's telling me to go to a Mexico restaurant. I'm going to be obedient to that, Lord. I'm going. I'm not talking about that. So hold on, bear with me. Look, when we receive something from the Lord, okay, whether it's a prompting from the Holy Spirit, speaks to you in your quiet time, if it's to remove something from our lives, relinquish that door of your heart that you have kept secret, whether it's from your family or your spouse or have attempted to keep it from the Lord. And I say attempted because you can't keep anything secret from the Lord. He sees the good and the bad. When we get deceived 
into not being fully obedient. And, and it is deception. I, I use that word purposefully because you do get deceived in not being obedient. Same thing happened with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were deceived to eat of the fruit that God had told them not to eat. They disobeyed God because they were deceived, thinking, eh, I kind of know, I think I, think, I, I think I can handle the situation, God. I think I can think for myself, and this is okay. Well, when we're deceived in that manner, we miss out. And maybe it starts small. You know, we, we get tricked. Uh, we get swayed into partially being obedient. When you could be fully obedient, mm, you, you, you don't dot the, the I or, or cross the T, and you're not fully obedient. This slowly becomes normal. Anything you walk out and do can become a habit. And, and, and if you are disobedient, even the smallest minutia, that can become a habit and, and can invade and pray everything in your life. Your thoughts, your actions, how you speak, the attitude of your heart. We get comfortable doing it, and then that gets into every aspect of our life, lives excuse me, in response to what the Lord calls us to do. But I, I want to look at scalability here for a second. None of us are sitting here this morning thinking, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a king. I don't have 200,000 soldiers. God hasn't recently called me to go into a land and completely wipe them out from under the name of heaven. I don't really see how this applies to me. Let's talk about scalability here. So the Lord in your drive to work or drive wherever you're going by yourself says, you know what? I don't, I don't want you listening to that song. I think you need to change the channel. Or even... even you know, I say a song for a reason here. It could be a TV program, but I, just turn the radio off. But your defense back, and believe me, it happens, I know, because I've done the same thing. Your defense back is, it's just a, it's just a song. I really like the beat. I, I just, I like it. It gets me pumped for work. I, it's just a song. It's not that big of a deal. Okay, so what happens? The lyrics that don't justify the, or don't glorify the Lord are now burned into your memory all day long. And what do you repeat if you hear a song in the morning? What's the tune you're singing all day long? The words that didn't glorify the Lord are now being repeated in your mind all day long. Where all, had you been obedient and changed a channel on the radio or put a CD in, you now have a worship song. And a lot of worship songs are straight scripture. Where you could have been repeating scripture and worshiping God all day long, now you're not. And that does happen. Now, Let's take, for instance, a doctor. A doctor has a code of ethics. They have multiple things that they have to be obedient to. They need to have the health and welfare of, of and I don't know all the terms and lingos, and, and Russ and Kim can probably scold me after this, but anyways, they want to keep the health of the patient at the forefront of their mind. What if you're a doctor and you're doing an operation? You know, you're, you're finishing up and you look and, I got about 95% of the gauze that I was using. That's good enough. We're good. I'll finish, I'll finish, and I'll sew up the wound. We pray that the doctor is diligent in removing everything that went in, that he used, because what happens down the road? What about an anchor on a boat? When you go out, the anchor 
is supposed to go a certain depth. What does that do? It anchors the boat. Eh, you know what? I'm the anchor. I'm only going to go down about a foot, get wet. I'm good. I don't need to go down in the murk. I don't need to hit the bottom. Is the boat anchored? Nah. No, that boat's going to be thrown around. Where does it stop? Our flesh, our flesh doesn't want to be obedient anyways. Just call it out. As soon as you admit that, you'll realize our flesh will do their best. What will do its best to not be obedient to the Lord. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be obedient to the Lord. So if we're in our flesh not being obedient in the small things, how in the world are we going to be obedient in the large things? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's small or it's large. Being disobedient is a sin. When you are disobeying the Spirit of the Lord, you're sinning, and it's a fade to gray. You start small, and it's not going to stay small. The enemy has got a a hook, and he's going to widen the chasm. Samuel tells us in verse 22, for it is, uh, and you guys have heard this verse many times, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Saul forgot his first love. He forgot he was concentrating on something else as opposed to obeying the Lord. Obeying the Lord is a sacrifice itself. And that's what he forgot. Saul wanted to sacrifice to the Lord with the best of the animals that he got from the Amalekites, but that was an actual act of disobedience. He was looking ahead, thinking that sacrificing to the Lord was a right, but that doesn't justify the wrong that it took him to get there. F.B. Myers says it like this, We listen to soft voices that bid us stay our hand when our Isaac is on the altar. We are quite prepared to give up that which costs us nothing, but not the self-indulgences which are fascinating to our, temper, to our temperament. All that a man hath will he give for his life. Only spare him that, and he will cheerfully renounce his claim to all else. There's always a tendency with the best of us to make a bargain with God and sacrifice all to his will if only we will, we will permit us, only he will permit us to spare a gag in the best of the spoil. I, I love these older men of faith. No, no one can quite say it like them. It's straight, it's to the point, and it's so truthful. We'll do anything the Lord asks us to do as long as we get to keep that part back that we don't want to give up. You look at Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts 5. They sold a possession and they gave some, but they kept some back. It's a picture of where your heart is. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? When the Lord puts something and put something on my heart to, to be obedient in, where's my heart? Is my heart fully surrendered to the Lord? Am I going to do what he asked me to do? Or is part of my heart mm, still mine? I don't want that. Do you truly want to be surrendered and obedient? Or do we think we know what's best? It comes down to that. If the Lord is telling you to do something and you don't do it, you think your plan and your idea is better than God's. It's kind of black and white. Ananias and Sapphira were cut off from the ranks of the church because of their dishonesty with the Lord and partial obedience. Now there are too many examples to list or to even go over regarding how 
being disobedient in what the Lord has told you to do has disastrous results. I'm sure all of us, every single one of us, pretty much has an example of when we were disobedient to the Lord and it had a disastrous result, regardless of what the outcome was. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to Samuel, 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 10. You don't have to turn there because we're going to turn somewhere else in a second. 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 10. We find out that Saul, Saul spared King Agag. And any other Amalekites, by the way, that might have gotten away because of Saul's inattention to detail of the command of the Lord. Saul finds his death at the end of an Amalekite spear. The very people God had specifically told Saul to utterly destroy had become his own destruction. And we need to look that and take that to heart. If the Lord is telling you today or has been for months to rid your life of something, you better think about it and you better look at this example because you don't want that to become your ruin because it became Saul's in 2 Samuel. He was killed by an Amalekite spear. Not following God's direction has lifelong and eternal impacts on your life and others' lives as well. Now, I want to take a break from 1 Samuel. If everyone would please turn to the book of Esther. It's about eight books to the right. We're going to be looking at the book of Esther, chapter 7. It's only three verses, so we won't be here very long. But this is very pertinent because it's a disastrous result. Esther, chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. had, Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in the heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. All right, this is where Queen Esther saves the Jewish people from the plans and the schemes of destruction from Haman. He had laid them for their complete demise. What you may not have known, and some of you may know this, but Haman, the only person really planning this and heading this whole destruction of the Israelite people, was a a direct descendant of King Agag, whom Saul kept alive in direct disobedience to God's command to utterly destroy them all. God was trying to use Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, And he failed and disobeyed. In the book of Ruth, an Amalekite is trying to destroy all of the Israelites. Praise the Lord that God's timing and plan is perfect. And Haman is actually taken care of. Where Saul should have done that. We see a direct result of partial or broken obedience to God's direction and what takes place. The disregarded obedience became a national threat to the Israelites. Now, being disobedient to what the Lord has commanded you, and it's different for everyone. Um, he, he speaks things to each one of us that, that I might 
have a problem with. He wants me to lay down at the foot of the cross that's different than what you have. But being disobedient with the Lord has commanded you and I to do as believers, both collectively as a body or individually, might not destroy a nation. But you know what? Years of it could, and we're living in it right now. It could prevent someone from hearing the gospel because later that day, their life is required of them. They could spend eternity in hell because we didn't reach out when he prompted our hearts. It could be disastrous for a family when the Lord has told a spouse to love their spouse as Christ loved the church and didn't. It could drive one of us individually to our knees as our life spirals out of control as we continue to push the Lord away because we think we know what's best and we're disobeying him. But we also have a beautiful picture of God's hand of protection and restoration and how truly he is in control here in Esther. Romans 8, verse 39, or 38 and 39, excuse me. Tell us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's awesome because that was a VBS song, I don't know how long ago, and it still rings in my head. I love that part. Yes, being disobedient to the Lord is going to bring about repercussions. Every sin does. He'll forgive you for them if you ask with a humble heart, but they still have an impact. But thank the Lord that his mercies are new every morning. As Psalm 136 says, his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord. So implication for our lives. As, the, uh, as I call the worship team up, I want to close in saying not being obedient to the Lord does have disastrous, disastrous results for our lives and others' lives. Are we willing to give Christ every key to the doors that are in our heart? Except for one. When God tells you to give something up, are you okay and fine with giving away all the worthless, shedding the worthless stuff, but have a problem holding on to that which, which you, you just can't let go? Let us fully surrender to God. All it takes is a heart that is humble to go before the throne and ask the Lord, Father, I'm having problems in this area of my life. I don't want to hold this on any longer. Just let go. Because you can't and you won't be obedient unless you're surrendered. I I spent 25 years of my life trying and failing because our flesh, as Paul says, won't do what we want it to do. Let us fully surrender to God. And in so doing, rejoice knowing that we're doing the perfect will of the Father. When God gives us a command in our heart and tells us, lay something on our heart, the the Holy Spirit pricks your heart. If you're obedient, you're doing the work of the Father. Let us truly heed to hear him and respond with, with full obedience. Full, not partial. Don't, don't think giving half is going to be good enough. If I do an engine rebuild and I do half the engine rebuild, the engine's not going to run. It's got to be the whole thing. John 17, 4. And some of you know this well. Jesus' own words, so powerful. I have finished the work which you, speaking to God, have given 
me to do. Praise the Lord, he completed that work. He was obedient unto the Father and to death. He completed that work. That was an act of obedience. The most perfect act of obedience. Can you even begin to imagine if Jesus had not completed the work of the Father? I can't. I can't fathom. I don't want to. I cannot fathom not having a Savior or a Redeemer. Someone who is constantly my Redeemer. You know, if your life, just a question as I was closing up, if your life was required of you today, could you say that you finished the work that God had put on your heart? Could you say, I, I, I finished it. I, I, was, I was obedient. I've ran the race. Or would your answer be, I was good to get to it. You know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't think it was that important. I, I pray that our, our, our answers today is that we would walk in obedience. Our answer is, Lord, I was obedient. You know, my prayer for all of us as, as, we, as we close today and, and, and walk out of these doors, that we walk in joy as we are being obedient to his calling. The, the cool thing is, did you know that when you are obedient, it fills you with joy? Did you guys know that? When you're obedient to the Lord, it fills you with joy. I can't even begin to describe it. I cannot manufacture. I can't do it. I can't manufacture the joy and, and no one else can. You can't give yourself the joy knowing that you were obedient to what the Lord calls you to do. And, it, and I, even, I, get, I get crazy joy, even in the smallest of things the Lord has asked me to do. And, you know, I can tell you some of the things the Lord has asked me to do, and it could be as simple as, you know what, just pick that up for her. She can't pick it up, and, and, and she just got out of the hospital work. She can't pick up that paper she dropped. And someone else might be like, that is so insignificant. But you know what? The Lord told me to do it. And you know what? I did it, and I had the joy of the Lord because of it. It's a joy you can't give yourself. Nothing can fill that space, but being obedient to the Lord can. Absolutely can. Let us, um, let's walk out of here with changed hearts. Let's change the attitude of our heart when we leave here and desire to please the Lord in obedience in our lives. Whatever that means, whatever that is to you. Lord speaks to each one of us in our hearts at different times with different things. But you know what? Choose. Choose to be obedient. And watch him fill you with joy. I'm going to close in prayer and then um, let's, let's finish in a, uh, a worship song. Let's go before the Lord, guys.